All right, well, come on back and uh, uh, turn with me, would you please, to the eighth chapter of the book of Luke. We passed this out at the beginning here of our study last week. We have a book of Job handout. If you have it, great. If you don't, well, that's okay too, but it's a great handout here to kind of tell us where we're moving and what we're doing. And we're in that uh, place uh, on our chart that's Job 4 through 37. Remember, Job starts out with a bang, 1 through 3. Everybody loves to read 1 through 3 and the intrigue in the heavenlies where we see Satan and God talking with each other. And lots of people like to read Job 38 through 42. Uh, because that's the great uh, vindication, great restoration. But a lot of people bog down, uh, quite frankly, in Job 4 through 37, which is all this uh, d- dialogue and back and forth between Job and his three friends, and then, of course, Elihu. But um, last week, we got to that place where Eliphaz, the first comforter, and Job were talking back and forth. And This week, we hope to handle at least Bildad and Job. That's in chapters 8 through 10 and maybe Zophar, but we'll see. Uh, Bildad and Job in this controversy, and this chart says controversy between Job and his friends. I'm not so sure it's a controversy. I think what's happening there, and we talked about this at length, is these guys are giving giving Job truths, and they're rigid theologically. You ever met somebody who's rigid theologically? You're saying, well, shouldn't I stand for truth? Yeah, you should stand for truth, but you better be pretty loving when it comes with it. Because what's happening here is they're not addressing Job's heart. They're addressing Job's head. And he needs some heart. He needs some love. And uh, they're not, uh, uh, you know, at that place. So anyway, that's what we've been doing. I want to start out and remind you that there's a terrible mistake that the friends are making. It's a terrible mistake that a lot of us make. And that's this. This isn't the mistake. They're good here. God is sovereign. He's providential. If you were with us in Esther, you saw that God can even work through nations, uh, enemy nations that that, that are considered enemies of the families of God. God can work through insomnia. God can even uh, have them uh, work through the choices they make in choosing a book off the shelf. That's there in in Nehemiah and Esther. So uh, God is uh, doing uh, sovereign things. He rules, he reigns, and in Job 1 and 2, we actually see a good picture of that. And we also see, and we know this, right? Life doesn't make sense unless God's the judge. You, you and I ought to be jumping up and down when we hear that God is judge because it gives life meaning. So one of the things that they think here at Job's friends is that God's sovereign. He rules and reigns and all things are filtered through him. The second thing that they assume is that God is fair and just, and he is fair and just. But it doesn't seem, does it, that Job's friends ever bring in the love and the kindness and the goodness of God. They just all want to concentrate on the just and fairness of God, and he is just and fair. Here's the mistake they make, though. 
Here it is. Here it comes. They assume because God is sovereign and God is fair and just, he always, listen, he always blesses the righteous and punishes wickedness. And the Bible tells us that God has grace. There's rain, there's grace for the just and the unjust. But what they assume is that there's something wrong in Job's life, therefore he's suffering. And they make this terrible mistake. Here it comes. That suffering is always negative. There's no redemptive quality to any suffering. Now, I want you to throw that out of your head. Here's why. One writer writes it like this. If it's true there will be no undeserved suffering in the universe, and if there is no undeserved suffering, or if also if there's unde- no un- or if there's no undeserved suffering, there listen, listen, there can be no redemptive suffering. There can be no sacrificial substitutionary suffering. And if there's no substitutionary suffering, there can be no grace. Ultimately, the religious system to which the friend we're going to talk about tonight, Bildad, subscribes is a system devoid of grace and therefore devoid of comfort. It's certainly no comfort to Job, who, as we know, is suffering because his patient faith, listen to this, will bring glory to God and not because he's being punished for his sins. Now, let me read the first line of this again. There is, if there is no undeserved suffering, there's no redemptive suffering. What do you mean? I want you to think of, I want you to be able to think here. Where is the greatest act or example of undeserved suffering? At the cross. Can us as followers of Christ be greater than our master? No, no, no. We're followers of our Lord and Savior. He says in this world there will be suffering. There will be tribulation. Does God always bless the righteous and punish wickedness? And is there ever any undeserved suffering? Well, folks, there's lots of what we would say is undeserved suffering. Wouldn't you say? You ever watch the news for about two seconds? And you see a small child and something happened to them and you say, why? Undeserved suffering. That, that's what we're dealing with here. Now, you know this, right? Remember this. Everything's stripped away from Job because there's this blasphemy that the devil says to the Lord. Yeah, that's all well and good, Lord, but you take away the stuff from this guy, I know you're touting him as one who is a great follower of you, but if you take away his stuff, he'll curse you. So he takes away the stuff, including children, 10 of them. He takes away his wealth. And the heartbreaking, well, they're all heartbreaking, but an extra heartbreaking, his wife says to him, it'd be just better if you just curse him and die. Can you imagine? 
The one who's yoked with him, the one who's following the Lord with him, just says, throw in the towel and just curse him. All these things are stripped from him. And then the boils come, and he's sitting on the heap, the ash heap, where the, the refuse heap, where dung is thrown. There is he sitting. I mean, he is at a place of nothing but him and the Lord. There's nothing there, and there's lots of suffering. And we know that it's undeserved suffering because the Bible tells us that there was no one as upright as Job at the time. He was the great man of the East. So this is dealing. This is what I want you to see. This is dealing with undeserved suffering. So I'm going to read it to you again. If there is no undeserved suffering, there can be no redemptive suffering, no sacrificial substitutionary suffering, and if no substitutionary suffering, there can be no grace. So you see, listen, I got all I got I got the list up here. <laughs> I got them everywhere. Cuz you're all saying, "Well, come on, give me the list of what suffering can do for us." Yeah, I I've got some of those lists. But this is something bigger than that. The enemy wants you to curse God because of some sort of circumstance. God is bringing us into this place where we love him just for him. And you're going to be with him for all of eternity. All of eternity. In fact, look at this. In the Sermon on the Mount, I hope this is right. In Matthew 5, and I think it's verse 12. Yeah, oh, whew, whew. Talking about who has the kingdom of heaven and what you are as a Christian, the Beatitudes. In verse 12, he says, See, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Here it here comes. For great is your reward in heaven. What you're going to go to, where you're going to go to, and whom you're going to be with is greater and better than anything you could ever think or hope for. And when you get there, you know what you're going to say? I think, I think this is what you're going to say. I think Job is saying this right now. I don't know why you didn't, you know, you, you had that circumstance. You were praying about it for 30 years or 40 years, and it just didn't ever go away. <laughs> or, I don't know, a person that's out of your life or in your life, and you want them out or you want them in. I don't know. Why won't, why, Lord, why, why? When you get there and you see as clear as you can see with the one whom you've always been destined to be with, praising and worshiping the Lord, great is your reward in heaven. You're going to say, oh, I get it. It was all worth it. So turn back to me, with me, excuse me, to verse 8, or chapter 8. Oh, by the way, what's the fourth thing? If I suffer, I must have sinned and am being punished justly for my sin. Job blows that away. That theology's not right. If you suffer, 
you're, you're saying, and, and you believe what his friends believe, somebody must have sinned and you're being punished justly for your sin. It's like Santa Claus mentality. I do the good stuff, I get the good stuff. I don't do the good stuff, I get the bad stuff. But see, sometimes people who are doing all the right stuff still get what we consider undeserved suffering. And then what do you do with that? Are you willing to sit here and listen and study and grow and think and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to your hell or your heart the questions that are popping up in your mind right now? Are you willing to sit there and not have the easy pat answers? I can give you the easy pat answers. I've got the list. <laughs> or were you willing to go deeper with the Lord about suffering? Well, let's read this, chapter 8. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, answered and said, remember, Job last time had gone on and on and on about how his complaint was just and good and it was right and about how his friends weren't really speaking to his heart. And he gets, I mean, it's chapter 7, it's a long chapter. And listen to what Bildad the Shuhite, that's number two of the comforters, number two of his friends, probably the second oldest, the middle one. The first one, Eliphaz, he's the guy who sees the visions. I had a nightmare, brother. And it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. And here's what God told me to tell you. There must be something wrong with you. You won't admit it but there must be something wrong. So just admit it and get back to all the prosperity that you had, which was basically saying, agree with the enemy. But the only reason I love you, the only thing I'm seeking are the gifts. So Job wouldn't do it. He wouldn't give in to it. And now he gives this long thing in chapter 7, and Bildad says this, can you imagine? What a friend. How long are you going to speak these things? Bildad says, and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind. In other words, hey, Job, you're a windbag. You're full of hot air, man. Eliphaz was the one who was the visionary, the vision guy. Bildad is the academic, the, the one who reads the classics and advises him from ancient wisdom. Watch, I'll show you. He says, start off, you're full of hot air, bro. Can you imagine saying that to Job after what this guy's been through? You've sat there for seven days. You haven't said anything. You've seen him cry. He's on the dung heap. It was good. You came and you just sat with him and you hugged him and you just loved him. But, but after seven days, you know, you're seven days. You can't take it anymore. You just got to talk. You just got to say something. I mean, give him advice and just give it to him. I've given him seven days. Here, he goes, man, why, why are you such a windbag? And Bildad says this, does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? Remember, Bildad is going to vehemently or vigorously defend God's justice. And God is just. Isn't he perfectly just? But he's also perfectly loving. And he's also perfectly kind. But here he focused on just the justice. And how about this low blow? I mean, you saw it last time. 
If your sons have sinned against him, he thinks he's being nice, folks. You know why he thinks he's being nice? Well, Job, it wasn't you that sinned, maybe, but it had to have been your sons. Now, remember, what was Job doing in the first couple chapters? He was sacrificing for his family. But if your sons have sinned, in other words, probably maybe if it wasn't you, but if it were your sons against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. Wow, what a know-it-all. If you would look at this, just the simple solution, folks, just the simple solution under this false theology. If you would just earnestly seek God and make your application to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you. He would come to life for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. You see it again? His friends are trying to get him to love the gifts so much that he'll give in and say, okay, I sinned. Isn't that weird? We often do that to people, folks. And prosper you rightfully, though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. You ever get that prayer from somebody? They come, that prayer request from somebody? Hey, would you pray that I would get out of this situation? I always, when somebody asks me that, I'm like, okay, I'll pray it, man, I guess. But I don't know if the Lord wants you out of that situation. Or me. (laughs) Maybe. I'll pray it. But there's good things in the situation folks, that God's after. He's after your whole eternity and living with him and prosper you. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. Hey, if you'll just start over again, your beginning might be small, but it'll work out in the end. You see that? And what's interesting is maybe that would happen, but it doesn't apply to Job. You understand why? Because there's no unconfessed sin here. There's nothing he's hiding. So, for inquire, please, of the former age, and consider things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and knew nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. So uh, please, inquire, consider the things that we discovered in the olden times. You see this? He's learned, I've examined what what we've done, and I'm you know, done the the statistics and the charts, and I've considered all these things. But our days are short. Won't they teach you and tell you in other words from their heart? In other words, he's giving some sort of wisdom poem about human intellect. And he says this, giving examples. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? While it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. Listen to this. So are the paths of all those who forget God, and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish. There has to be, in other words, a cause of why you're suffering. When a reed grows, you know that they need plenty of water. And it, you know, can't be cut down or bothered or it's going to die. It withers. So there must be something wrong with you. That's what his friend's saying to him. There must be this hidden sin. There must be this gross sin. The hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, and whose trust is a spider's web. He leans on his house, but as it doesn't stand. In other words, you, you can't lean on this spider web here, Job. This, if you fall onto what you're building your whole life around because you won't admit 
that you're sinful, it's just going to cave in. The spider web will never hold you. He holds it fast, but it doesn't endure. He grows green in the sun and his branches spread out in his garden. That's what Job, he's saying, is like, you, you grow green in the sun, your branches spread out, but your roots don't go very deep. The rock heap, it goes into the rock heap and looks for a place in the stones. You, you, why won't you just get to the root of the problem here, Job? That's what he's saying. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless. And what's interesting about this is go back to Job 1.8. Go there. Job 1, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's nothing like or none like him on the earth, a blameless, there it is. God says it, he's a blameless and right, right man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless. You see this? It's like a backhanded compliment. God will not cast away the blameless, so you must not be blameless. Unless, and yet God had said to the enemy, you are, or he is blameless. You see that? And he actually says it over in chapter 2, verse 3. By the way, little rabbit trail. Job doesn't know chapter 1 and chapter 2 had happened. <laughs> so imagine the faith in the Lord Job must have had to have had, even not seeing the scenes that we see. He didn't have the ability to go back to chapter 1, verse 8 and go, look what God said about me. He just had to trust. You see this? Isn't that interesting? It's a call to us. I'm giving away the end a little bit. But it's a call to us to understand and know the Word and find out who really God is in His Word and find out who you are in relation to God and as much as you can, because you can't know perfectly, this side of glory, as much as you can, understand the attributes of God. And one of the things that you must know is there's a lot of undeserved suffering. There's suffering that makes not a lot of sense humanly. You got that? But Jesus suffered and was undeserving for something that was greater and higher. Now go back. God won't cast away the blameless, verse 20 of chapter 8, nor will he uphold the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. If you don't want to be destroyed, and if you want to get back to normalcy, just say you have a, hun un or a hidden sin, unconfessed sin. Isn't that wild? They just won't leave him alone. And here it comes. This is the courtroom scene. If you study this chapter and many of the chapters that are coming, they're using legal jargon here. Isn't that interesting? You're into the courtroom of God, so to speak. Romans is very much like that. Here it's very much like that. Job comes back and responds to his second friend. Here it comes. Then Job answered, 
and says to Bildad, he's talking to Bildad, okay? Truly, I know it's so. He goes, yeah, yeah. I can think what he's saying is, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it sounds pretty right. You know how you say that when somebody says some things to you? But remember a couple weeks ago, maybe it was two weeks ago, maybe it was last week, <clears throat> I said that there's going to be a lot of questions. You know, fascinating, isn't it? Jesus asked questions of the people he was ministering to. Why do you think Jesus asked questions of the people he was ministering to? Why do you think that is? Here's why it is. You know, you get to law school. I had nobody in my family go to school, college. So here I am, I graduate law school. I get to the first day of law school, first year, I've told this story before, I am not kidding you. I have this class called torts. The teacher stands up the first day and says, anybody know what a tort is? I said, I thought it was a dessert. And I'm not kidding you, I had no idea what a tort was. Tort, a negligence action, a personal injury action. In the old British common law, it was called a tort. I mean, I didn't know anything. And what people in law school did, here's what drove you nuts about law school. You'd read the cases every night, and then you'd go to the class, and you want you just want the answer. Who here just loves the answer? Good. You love the answer. Okay, you go to law school, you go to read the thing, you do your homework, and you just want the answer, and you'd show up, and no professor in one whole year would ever give you the answer. All they would do is ask questions. Why do you think they were doing that? so that you would discover the answer for yourself. And you'd learn it and know it for yourself. And Jesus does that. And now, God does that through Jesus, right? And in the Old Testament, look at this. Here's a man that's asking questions, and it's set in the courtroom of God. What do I mean? Look at this, verse 2. Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? I told you that whole story because I think what one of the things that the Lord's after with you and with me is to rightly divide the word. That's from the New Testament. I think what the Lord wants you and I to do and to know is to know him in an intimate way. Know him and know his word so that you can understand complex things. I was talking to somebody before that... Um, service today, complex things, and bring them down to where common people like me can understand them. And so that you can share them with other people, right? And one of the ways I think he does that is this interplay between he and you. Lord, I don't understand what this is about. I'm not sure God always gives you the black letter law of theology. That's what we call it in law school, black letter law. I think he asks you a lot of questions. And you start to learn and grow and live with him and build with him and experience with him through his word by the spirit. And you come into this place that's deeper and fuller than just knowing the word. Make sense? Here, he says, truly, I know it so, but how can a man be righteous before God? I want you to see something, man. This is touching right here to me. It's going to choke me up. That guy often gets Here's a guy who's been stripped of everything. Think about it. Maybe two years prior to this, the cry wasn't in Job's case because he was blameless and upright, but, but normal people, maybe before they're stripped of things, the cry of their heart is, oh, that I would have a great marriage. 
Oh, man, that I could attain to that level in my corporate job. Or, man, if I could just save this amount of money. Or if I could live in that neighborhood. Or if my kids were the prom queen or the prom king or whatever. Boy, when that happens, oh, shoot, that would be the cry of my heart. God here has taken away everything from Job. Listen to what the cry of his heart is. Oh, how can a man be righteous before God? You're saying, what? Oftentimes, when everything's stripped away and out comes the cry of your heart, you know what you really love. Did you catch that? And sometimes the cry of our heart can be, oh, man, I just hope I can attain that position in the company. And the Lord's like, hmm, wow, okay. What about, how could we get to the place where it's just me and you and that's enough? Here he says, how can a man be righteous before God? I think that's a double, double meaning there. One is, I think he's sincerely interested, how could I be righteous before God? We all ask that question, right? But the other is, how could I justify myself before God? And why I'm saying that is because I know the rest of this uh, chapter. Who will plead my case? In other words, how can a man be righteous before God? And who will plead my case? Because if one wished to contend with God, he couldn't answer him one time out of a thousand. No one could answer God. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. See, these are all great truths, right, that Job's portraying. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered. Nobody has. He removes the mountains and they don't know. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place. Earthquakes happen and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it doesn't rise, verse 7. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens, treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, or however you say it. And the chambers of the south, he does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. He's amazing. He's so huge and big. Job is the place, right? He's at this place. Listen to this. As you come back to verse 1, how can a man be righteous before God? He's facing, listen, he's face to face with maybe this impossibility, right? Watch this. That maybe he might never achieve the deepest longing of his heart at that point. How could he be righteous before God? In other words, how could he be back in a relationship with God? He's so big. If I tried to justify myself before God, it would never work. Are you catching this? And then he goes on in verse 11, and he goes, if he goes by me, I don't see him. In other words, he's invisible. If he moves past, I don't perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. How then could I answer him? You see that? I can't plead my case with God and choose my words to reason with him. You see this courtroom language here? It's really fascinating. For though I were righteous, I couldn't answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, verse 16, uh, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. How can such a small being, in other words, have any dealings with such a great God? Are you catching that? That's what he's saying. 
for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. You see, here's another little rabbit trail. What do people want to know about suffering? They want to know there's a purpose in the suffering. If there's suffering without purpose, listen, folks, it's toxic to them. But if they could see, if we could see, all of us, a purpose in our suffering, it helps, it enables us to overcome with God's help. Are you catching that? And here he says, you're multiplying my wounds without a cause. And the funny part is, this isn't without a cause. I referred to it earlier. Great is your reward in heaven. You people, us in Christ, we in Christ, listen, listen. We're here just for a very short time and then into eternity. Into eternity. And we're going to be there forever. We, we, we're going to have rewards. This is, I want you to see something. You're part of a massive story that's not just your paycheck and your friends and the things that you do on Friday night or Saturday for all day for your leisure. You're part of a story of God's redemption, good versus evil. You're part of it. You're right in the middle of it. You're right in the thick of it, and it's huge and big. In other words, there is cause. There is a cause. There's a reason for all of this. Life isn't just some meaningless thing where we just crawled up out of the ooze and we just kind of, you know, stuck together and formed and grew and there's no meaning and purpose. No, you were formed in your mother's womb. There's a purpose for this. You're part of a massive, amazingly big story. Too big to even name or identify or measure. It's huge. When your feet hit the floor in the morning, I know you're thinking about your, your lists, you know, and your coffee and all of that's necessary, and we have it, and we do it. And yet, whatever your lists are, are they giving the glory? Are they, they designed to do business until Jesus comes back? Are we here? Are we participating in the story? Yes, you have purpose and meaning. It's not without a cause. But when suffering happens, we can waste it. I'll talk about that in a minute. We can waste the suffering. Here, we can say things like, what's going on? It doesn't have any cause, and yet there's this big cause. He won't allow me, verse 18, to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it's a matter of strength, indeed he is strong, and of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth were condemn me. Yes, he goes, he understands. I'm so little, and he's so big. If I just started talking, he would know that I'm not righteous. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. He, Listen, in God's economy, he understands what he didn't hear God say, that he's kept short accounts, and that in his time when he was living, as much as a person could be mature, 
and blameless. He wasn't sinless, but he relied upon the Lord to take care of his sins in the only way he could in the earliest book of the Bible. Do you understand that? And when he says to his friends, look at this, I am blameless, yet I don't know myself, it's like he said, there I said it. Your theology is total, you know what. Hey, good, somebody laughed at my jokes. <laughs> I despise my life, it's all one thing. Therefore I say, he destroys, look at this, this is going against his friends. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. You, you folks are wrong, there's some undeserved suffering. I'm the one, I know, I'm exhibit A, Job says, get it? If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. It's not he. Who else could it be? Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, verse 25. They see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. My days just fly by. If I say, look at this, I will forget my plight. Now he goes into this. He goes like this. He goes, okay, listen. I'm hurting here. I'm not under sure I understand the cause. So here's what I'll do. I'll smile and put on a good attitude. This is what he says. I'm afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why do I then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hand with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor. Job's recognizing here that he's not righteous without God. Even if I try, he says right there in verse 30, to clean up my own act, if I tried to clean myself up, I couldn't be righteous. Now here it comes. You're like, okay, come on. I'm going to go through 37 chapters of this. Well, yeah, you probably are, except for watch. Remember last week I said, it's like those little, I said crocuses because I don't know any plants, but you know those little spring flowers that come up and everybody puts them on Facebook and says, look, spring's here. And they're just little and peewee and you, you just see the sprouts of life coming up. Okay, look, here's the next verse. Here it comes. Out of the desperation, out of the suffering, out of the questioning, out of the everything, the turmoil of this man's heart, here it comes. He's saying something. God's using him right here. Watch it. Verse 32, for he is not a man as I am. I'm a little man. He's a big God, and he's not a man as I am. Now, wait a minute, folks. You know the Old Testament. Or excuse me, you know the New Testament. He's looking for somebody that I may answer him. He's not a man as I am, but if he was, I could answer him. Isn't that interesting? And that we should go to court together. He's still talking court language. Now watch, this is the beauty of it. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and do not let dread of him who terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it's not so with me. Now I'm so thankful for Xander in lots of ways. But one way is he gave me G. Campbell Morgan's book on Job. And man, I read that book and I was totally blown away. 
because G. Campbell Morgan has got it right. Here this man is in the Old Testament, the earliest book of the Bible, part of the patriarchal age, and this thing happens to him, and he knows there's no unconfessed sin. There's nothing there, and he knows his friends are wrong. They're right, but they're wrong. You know what I mean? They're rigidly wrong. (laughs) They know some things about God, and that's right, but they're wrong. There is no unconfessed sin, and they're wrong because some people just suffer. They just do. We live in a fallen world, and sometimes people suffer. Look, and he makes these heart cries, these things that come from the depths of his soul. How can a man be righteous before God? If I only had a man who was like me, I could go through him and answer God. (laughs) Is it unbelievable? This is the oldest book in the Bible. And that we should go to court together. Man, if I showed up in court, I could have the one talk for me. Oh, there's no mediator between us. How about somebody who could lay his hand on both of us? He could, remember, my kids make fun of me this. The great high priest who lays his hand upon God, takes the hand of God, and takes the hand of man. Oh, that there would be somebody who could bring us together in between. Do you you know this in 1 Timothy 2.5? Maybe you should turn there. Turn over there in 1 Timothy 2.5. I want you to see something. First Timothy two five. <laughs> I'm in Second Timothy. I was like, oh, panic. Listen, read this. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, don't stop reading there. Who gave? Listen, this man didn't just lay his hand on the man or the hand of God. Nor did he just lay his hand or lay the man's hand in his hand. He didn't take the hand of man and the hand of God. Just that he did something else. He then, this mediator, the one who is the only person ever, the God-man, the only one ever, the God-man, who could do it fully God, fully man, the only one who could show up in God's courtroom and be the mediator. There's only one mediator that qualifies. Fully God, fully man. He's as a man, yet without sin. He's tempted in every point, just like you are. So he resonates with you. He, he, res- he, he knows you and he holds your hand. He, he's God and he holds his hand, you know. And he brings us together. But he didn't just bring us together. He, he paid for. He gave himself ransom for. Jesus said, I give myself ransom for many. Here he says he gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He did something. Isn't that beautiful? G. Campbell Morgan writes this. Job cries out for someone who could stand authoritatively between God and him and so create a way of meeting a possibility of contact with the very living God. How about he writes this in in relation to this verse Life only becomes complete when man has dealings with God directly. And Job knew it. 
There's this cry of this heart, how could I be righteous before God? I could never justify myself before God. God is so big, I'm so little. If only there was one who would lay their hand on both of us, oh my goodness, and bring us into this place where we could meet directly with God again. And I said again, remember we were walking in the garden? Man was walking in the garden. We weren't, but you know, <laughs> I wasn't. But uh, we were, the man was walking in the garden. Notice there was no mediator in the garden, but that since something happened and it ruptured our relationship, it, it was cataclysmic. It was sin and it separated us from God. And the mediator, look, puts us back. You ever thought about this? We can know who God is intellectually, but spiritually, how do we cry out, Abba, Father? It's because, listen, listen, listen. It's because of the mediator. He puts us back into relationship with God, which is the place that we were always intended to be. Are you catching it? Which means you're doing life the way you were intended to live even in your suffering. Let him take his rod away, verse 34, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear, but it's not so with me. Now listen, Job keeps going because he is raw. And he says in chapter 10, here's the question, the whole question, why was I born? Here it goes again. This is what suffering does. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, verse 2. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands? Hey, you made me, God. Why am I suffering so bad? I need a mediator. And smile on the counsel of the wicked do you, verse 4, have eyes of flesh? Or do you see as a man sees? It's funny, isn't it? It's what You know what Job's saying right there? Oh, that you could sympathize with me. And we just read it. Or excuse me, I, I just quoted it. Hebrews 4, 5, uh, 15, when he says, you know, he was tempted in every point, just as you and I are tempted in every point. He knows what you're feeling. He sympathizes with you. These are the cries of Job's heart. Are your days like the days of a mortal man, verse 5? Are your years like the days of a mighty man that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin, although you know that I am not wicked? And there is no one who can deliver from your hand. He wants a deliverer. By the way, just read Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 that speaks of this one. God's hand is not too short. He can reach out and put us back in right relationship. Here, look at this in verse 8. Your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity, yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay, and you, will you turn me into dust again? Why am I suffering? I'm yours, God. Did you not pour me out, verse 10, like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and favor Previously, I'm putting that in. Why not now? And your care has preserved my spirit. You've done it before. Why aren't you doing it again? And these things you have hidden in your heart. I know that this was with you. 
If I sin, verse 14, then you mark me and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I'm wicked, woe to me. If I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I'm full of disgrace. See my misery? If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion. It's like you're stalking me, Lord. And again, you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your indignation towards me. Changes and war are ever with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone that I may take a little comfort. Verse 20, 21, before I go to the place from which I shall not return to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself as a shadow of death without any order where even the light is like darkness. Now remember, side note, God tells Job, in chapter 38, you spouted off about death, but you've never seen the gates of death. So what you were saying was wrong. But here's what I want to point out. Here he is. He has these questions. I want you to turn someplace with me. I want you to turn to Mark 14 with me. <clears throat> G. Campbell Morgan says this. You'll never understand Job until you understand this point, that all the unanswerable questions that Job raises are directly answered in Jesus Christ. Job, kind of mysterious, kind of, you don't understand, but there's these cries that pop up out of his heart, like life, like the gospel is being alluded to. And you sit there and you wonder, why, why, why? And then Jesus comes and answers them all for us. Look in Mark 14 with me, would you? Then we'll close. If I can get there. <laughs> Sorry. Mark, I'm there. 14. Read this with me, starting at the first verse, or starting at the third verse. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some, look at this. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and say, why was, look, look, circle the word, folks. Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. And Jesus said, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But, when, but me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come uh, beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a moral to her. And you're like, what? What's going on here? Why are you referring me here? Here's why I'm referring you here. <laughs> you, ever, you, you ever watch the end of the spear about Jim Elliot? You, you know when Jim Elliot gets killed? You know what runs through my heart? Here's what I say. Wow. 
such a waste. <laughs> why did you kill him so early, Lord? Why, or why did he die so early? Not kill him so early. Why, did he, why was he killed so early? And why, why did he die so early? Such a waste. <sighs> Here we read in Mark 14.4, you know, you know what this is saying to us? Nothing, folks, nothing that is given to Christ in faith and love is ever wasted. And one of the things that the Lord wants you and I to do is to offer him our suffering in faith and in love. And there, it's never wasted. In fact, it's actually what God was after or thinking about or discussing with Satan in the first two chapters. You, Satan, say the blasphemy, if he has all the stuff, he'll bless you. God says to Satan, <laughs> That one loves me. That one loves me. Nothing ever done or given to Christ in faith and love would ever be wasted. I think from a very human perspective and watch that movie and go, wow. A life wasted so early. It's not what God thinks. So listen, some of us, aren't we? Some of us are suffering. We're in trials. They are hard. No one's patting you on the head here and saying, get over it and suck it up and put it on a happy face. But what we can know is that there are, is some suffering that happens that doesn't seem right or just according to the way man thinks. And yet, <laughs> undeserved suffering shows us that there can be redemptive suffering. And if that's true, <laughs> then you are part, and it is true, you are a part of an amazing story that God's working out for all to see. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much. And uh, as we learn and grow in these things, Lord, Lord, I know <laughs> we all want the answers <laughs> immediately and quickly. And yet, Lord, you're teaching us for eternity. Help us to be people who would Study and love and grow in your attributes, Lord. But help us to be people who love you, not because of anything you give, but just because of who you are and how beautiful you are. May we not just be people who sing lyrics, but really mean them. May we not be people who read the word and go out and don't do them. May we be people who obey out of a joyful heart, even in our suffering. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.